is the Lord over everything? We also answer the question, who am I? And most fundamentally, we say, well, we are creatures of God, created in the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. And we were created to have fellowship with God, to honor God, to walk with God, to do the work that he has given us to do, to live in the families he's given us to be in. But then last week we also answered the question, what is wrong? We all have a fundamental sense that something is wrong, that this world is simply not the way that it's supposed to be. And so we talked about the fall and what it means that sin has entered the world and the world is now fallen. We're affected. Every single human is affected by sin in need of a solution. And that's what we get to talk about today, to focus on the solution to the problem, to talk about redemption. And so in one sense, I've said we're covering the entire story of the Bible. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we're covering the entire thing in these four weeks. And so today, we're going to cover from Genesis 4 to Revelation 19. Kind of a big chunk. We're not going to read the whole thing now. We're going to look at this one passage, which sort of summarizes God's work of redemption. And that's 2 Corinthians 5, from verse 16 through 21. Here, Paul is reflecting on the work of God redeeming creation which has fallen into sin. So let me ask, if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy inerrant inspired word today? Second Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16, this is the word of the Lord. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray one more time and ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we are very thankful that you have given us your word to guide us, to be a light unto our path, a lamp for our feet, to guide our steps into the way of holiness, to give us everything that is necessary for life and for godliness, to make known to us the path of salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom you are reconciling the world to yourself. So, Father, we ask that your spirit will be our teacher, that you will open the eyes of our hearts, that you will help us to hear with open ears, to understand, to store these things in our hearts and to practice them in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we're going to try to look at the huge storyline of the Bible today. And I think one of the things that is most compelling about the whole story of the Bible as we try to understand it as a story that goes from creation to new creation, from beginning to end, that, that there is a, a beginning to this story. We have 
character is a main character and we have a plot with a, a problem that's introduced early on and then we have worked towards this resolution that builds to a climax towards the end of the story. We have all the elements of the story and I think one of the things about this particular story that we find so compelling is that this is fundamentally a redemptive story. I think the fact that it's redemptive, these redemptive stories that, that we know, there, there's something about that that's just attractive to us. Whether we find a redemptive story in a movie, in a, a book, in a, just a, a snippet of everyday life, we love these things. I think in part that's at least because we long for our own stories to be redemptive. We long for, for hope. We long for something better. We want to believe that the struggles and the hardships, the sufferings, whatever they may be, They're going to be overcome. That there's going to be a final resolution in which everything is made right in the end. And that resolution, that consummation of everything in the end will actually end up being sweeter because we have gone through those hardships. That, that they will be redeemed because a, a redemptive ending is different from simply a, a happy ending. Any story can be a, a happy ending, but it, it might not be convincing. It might not be compelling, but a redemptive storyline tells us that the struggling and the hardships, the suffering that the characters go through along the way is not meaningless, but that actually plays into who they are and is, therefore, it makes the end that much more profound. It makes it better. It makes it more satisfying. And that's exactly what the story of the Bible is. It's this story where we're introduced in the beginning to the main characters, God, we like to think we're the main character in each of our stories, but it's God who's the main character. We're introduced to the setting. Uh, it's paradise. But we barely have time to even see how good paradise is before everything goes wrong. And sin is introduced into the story. Man is expelled. Paradise is lost. The goodness of creation is tarnished. And right away, from the very beginning of the story, the question becomes, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to us? Are we doomed to live forever in this broken and fallen and sinful world? Or can sin be overcome? Can all the effects of sin be overcome? Can paradise be restored? And that's the story of the Bible, is how that happens. And, and we get to see throughout the story of the Bible how it plays out. And we know, just in reading the Bible, if you just start in Genesis and go all the way through, you'd notice you'd get a long ways into the story and you might be starting to despair as to whether or not sin is going to be overcome if you're, just <clears throat> if you're just focusing on the human characters. Because all the human characters that we meet in the story are flawed, some in small ways and some in great ways. And so we're introduced to, to Adam and he, <clears throat> of course, sins and he's expelled. We're introduced to Noah who sins. Abraham who sins and almost seems to lose the promises that God has given him. There's Moses, and he sins, and he doesn't even make it into the promised land. There's David, and he sins. And again, it seems like he's almost putting all the promises at risk, and you wonder, is there going to be a redemptive ending to this story, or is there not? And the redemptive ending is only found in this story through Christ. It's through Christ we get to see that it's not up to man to save himself, to undo the damage that he has done but the damage will ultimately be undone and paradise will be restored and humanity will be saved not because of man's actions, but because of God's actions. Because God takes it on himself 
to redeem the creation that he has made, that he delights in. And that is the story of redemption. This passage talks about it as the story of reconciliation. And here's what I want us to see from this passage in 2 Corinthians. It's a story we read. It's a story of grace. It's a story of God's initiative. It's a story of Christ. And it's the story of new creation. Grace, God, Christ, new creation. First of all, this story, the story of the Bible, is at its root a story of God's grace. <clears throat> if we went back to Genesis 3, and uh, you don't have to turn there, but if we just remember where we were, the well-known story last week, I, w- I want to just point out two things. The first was the promise. We looked at this last week, Genesis 3.15. Immediately after this first sin, God is delivering the consequences. He's telling them this, this curse that is brought on the earth, the punishment for their sin, but even in the midst of that, he's not even finished before he's giving them promise as well. And we call it the very first promise of the gospel. When he says to Eve that, that her descendant will crush the head of the serpent. And so even right there, we have this little glimpse of grace that God is, something's going to happen. The serpent's going to be destroyed, right? He who brought sin into the world is going to pay the penalty for it. And it immediately gives us hope. The problem's going to be overcome. But again, if we're just starting from the beginning and if we can kind of sort of take that imaginative leap for some of us to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who hasn't read this story, if we didn't know the ending, we just read and, and we come to Descendant of Eve after Descendant of Eve after Descendant of Eve and we're waiting. Which one is the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent? Which is the one who's going to be able to overcome and with each new character would have this sense of expectation? But it's not until we get to Christ. Jesus himself. There's that scene, if you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, when Christ is finally crucified towards the end and he dies. There's just that brief split-second scene of the snake slithering through the garden and then the sandaled foot of Jesus comes down on his head. Is that not the greatest scene in that movie? I can't get over that one because it's showing us. That's not recorded in the Bible that that actually happened. That's sort of a little artistic license in the movie. But it's the theological answer to the problem, isn't it? It's exactly what God has said is going to happen, that the descendant of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's what happened at the cross. That's what theologically is happening when Jesus is dying. We see that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. He's the only hero. We read it so often as though it's a story that's filled of these heroes that we're meant to emulate and to be like. In reality, none of the human characters of the Bible are really that heroic. They're, they're full of faults. They're human. They're like us. There's only one hero, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the one who brings redemption. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But I want you to see something else in the end of Genesis chapter 3. There's just this little note. <clears throat> it's almost a comment made in passing at the end of the chapter that the Lord God made clothes for Adam and Eve. It says he made them garments of skin. And it's just this little passing comment at the end of the chapter, but I think it gives us this little picture window, as it were, into the very heart of God, into the character of God. Because here we have Adam and Eve, and uh, if you remember, this, this newfound modesty that they have and this desire for clothes is actually a result of their sin before they had sinned Apparently they were just naked and and unashamed and happy 
and when they sinned, suddenly their eyes were opened, and they became aware that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together for themselves to try to hide their shame at being naked in the presence of one another. And then they hide from God. God comes in the garden, and he has to call to them, and they're hiding because they're ashamed. And God comes, and he's announcing these curses, this penalty for the sin that they have now brought on the world. But then we just get this little picture at the end. Here's the grace of God. He still loves his his creation. He cares for Adam and Eve. Yes, he has delivered the curse. He expels them out of the garden, and they're not welcome to come back into the garden that he put them in. But he still loves them. He still cares for them. And it says he makes them garments of skin. Garments of skin to cover them. It reminds me of Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, what we have in the garden there is this picture that God so loved Adam and Eve that while they were yet sinners, he gave in his grace coverings for them, garments. He made them clothes. He still loved them. There was not a sense that, that the alienation was now final, that it was completely broken, that he would no longer have anything to do with his creation. Rather, they were sinful now, and so, yes, they were alienated from him, but he still loved them. He still had this heart of compassion and mercy to care for them, to give them gifts of his good grace, and he gives them these clothes. It's just a tiny peek at the character of God that that will be revealed more fully as this story goes on, all building up to the ultimate gift of God's grace when he sends Jesus. But we see this little peek into the character of God's grace, and and there's another thing we see. And that is we see the initiative of God. That God is still the one who's working for his people. God is still the one who's taking care of his people. He's the one who's taking it on himself to begin solving the problems that Adam introduced. So Adam introduced this problem of shame, but God is the one who's dealing with it. And that's the second thing. It's a story of grace, and it's also... But we see the entire Bible, the entire Bible is a story of God taking the initiative to reconcile the world to himself. We see this, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God was reconciling the world to himself. I think we could take a phrase like that out of this verse and make that to be a summary of the entire story of the Bible. That God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Again, we see the initiative of God, right? It doesn't say that therefore, because of Christ, we are able to reconcile ourselves to God. We're not the ones who are beginning the process. We're not initiating. It says, therefore, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. God is the one who's taking the initiative. Again, it's, it's so easy for us. We pick up a Bible and we read it as though it's all about us, as though we are the main characters. We think we're the main characters in our own lives. This is a story about God and his creation and what God is doing to be, reconcile his creation to himself, to bring glory to himself in reconciliation. And we are those who benefit. I think... Paul says this of himself. First, in verse 18, he says, God reconciled us to himself in Christ. He reconciled us. So he's making it personal for him. Now, 
We could take this back to the garden and we see what God is doing with Adam and Eve, that God is the one who comes. God is the one who calls to them. Where are you? They're hiding from him. We remember prior to sin, God and man had enjoyed this fellowship. It was unhindered by sin. But sin comes in and now the relationship is broken. We're alienated. There's no fellowship. And as sinners, like Adam and Eve, our first natural response to the presence of God is to hide. Is to hide, to, to run. You see, sinners don't seek out God. Sinners hide from God. We see it in the garden, and it's the pattern for all of human life. Sinners don't seek God. Sinners hide from God. But the pattern on the other side is God seeks sinners. God takes the initiative to go into the garden and to call their name and to say, where are you? Just as he takes the initiative with us, that he comes to us, he calls our name and he says, where are you? God seeks us out. This is, I think, one of the most unique and and maybe even surprising things about the story of the Bible. And this is why we call it redemptive. This is why we call it grace. I think almost any other religion is some version of the story of Babel where man has to build himself the tower. Man has to work his way up to heaven. Man has to do something, have some accomplishment that he can use to get himself up to heaven. We have to climb the ladder. We have to pacify the God's anger towards us. We have to live the good life, offer the sacrifice. But the Bible is totally unique here. The Bible says something totally different. It says... Yes, it agrees. Yes, you have sinned against God. Therefore, you bear the guilt. You are the one who deserves God's wrath and God's punishment. And the Bible, even usually, it goes further than we want to go. It says, actually, your sin is far worse than you think it is. You think you have a sin problem and therefore you have to pacify God. The Bible says, yes, you do. You have no idea how bad it is. You couldn't earn God's favor back if you tried. And the truth is, most people don't try. They're not trying. Psalm 14 says there's no one who does good. No, not one. But the good news of the Bible is the story of redemption is not about man seeking God and somehow finding him. The story of redemption is that God comes into the garden and calls your name. That God is seeking out sinners. He's the one who takes the initiative to redeem a people for himself. Even though God is the... It's a weird word to use with God, but we could call him the victim, right? He's the one who sinned against in the garden. We usually think the one who does the offense, who who sins against the other person, it's their responsibility now to take the initiative to to seek reconciliation, to to ask for forgiveness. They have to make that first step. The Bible turns it around and says, no, you are the ones who sinned against God, and you had no desire to reconcile, because that's what the fall does to us. But God seeks you out. He's the one who makes that first move to be reconciled. Paul can certainly say that's true of his own story, isn't it? We just have to think of his conversion. Paul was not seeking God. Or maybe he was, but he was so far off base in the way he was doing it. He was going the absolute wrong direction, and yet there he was, he was riding his horse, and and Jesus appears to him and blinds him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What he says, he describes this sort of, he reflects on it. Titus Three. Paul reflects on his own conversion. Uh, Titus 3.3, 3. listen to what he says. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, 
led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That, that's Paul's assessment there when he's sort of his mature reflection on who he was before he met Christ, is that's who we were. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. That's his reflection on his conversion. He says, I, I was hating people. I was the worst person. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, a slave to passions and pleasures. But the mercy of God showed up and he saved me. It was God who took the initiative. It was God who took that first step towards Paul and said, I am going to lavish my mercy on you in such a way that you can do nothing else but respond in faith and repentance. Remember what Romans 2 says. Romans 2 says, for it's his kindness that leads us towards repentance. Right? It's not our repentance that leads God to be kind to us. It is his kindness extended first to the sinner that leads that sinner to repentance. That when the kindness of God just overcomes a sinner, that they are then brought to confess those sins. But it's God who moves towards us first. It's not us who moves towards God. And so this is the whole story of redemption throughout the Bible, that God is reconciling the world to himself. Apart from God's initiative, the world is lost in sin. But God is the one who is doing this. And therefore, it's going to be God who gets all the glory. It's Adam and Eve's story, it's Paul's story, and the truth is, it's your story and my story, too. If you love God today, it's not because you were somehow smarter than others and you made the right decision. It's not because you were somehow uh, better and made the wise choice. If you love God, it's because God loved you first and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for your sins and his kindness towards you drew your heart out towards him. He came in and he called for you. Where are you when you were still hiding from him? And he brought you to himself. That's why First John 4, it says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins how often we take a truth like this for granted. How often we don't truly meditate on the reality that God has sought us out before we did anything to earn that. In fact, we were doing things to earn the opposite, and yet God pursued us. God in his love came to us when we would not come to him, and he changed the disposition of our heart. It's a story of grace. It's a story of God's initiative. It's, of course, mostly it's a story of Christ. 2 Corinthians says, not only was God reconciling the world to himself, it says, uh, verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, God was doing it. And here's the whole hinge on which this story of redemption turns. Because it's really, in the big picture, it's not enough for us to say that it's a story of God's grace. It's not even enough for us to say that God takes the initiative because there's still this problem. Right? The problem that we have is, is sin. <clears throat> it's not simply a, a wrong disposition or shame or an inability to come to God. It, it's sin is the, the center of the problem we have. That is the cause of our alienation from God. 
and something must be done about our sin. There is no possibility of reconciliation until the problem of sin is removed. And he explains in verse 19 that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He was not counting their trespasses against them. Now, here's, our, our, here's what we know, that God, because he is perfectly holy and perfectly just, he cannot deal with our problem of sin simply by sweeping it under the rug. And he sim- can't simply can it up and set it aside and say, let's move on. Let's not deal with this, this big, ugly sin problem that we have. Let's just focus on the good. He can't do that. He's holy. He's perfect. He's just. Sin must be dealt with. And so if, if he's not counting those trespasses against us, who is he counting them against? Sin has to be accounted for. It has to be reckoned for. And what we know, we read it actually, verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only way that God cannot count our trespasses against us is because he counts our trespasses against Jesus. What Jesus did in going to the cross was not to die for his sins. He had no sin. What he did was he took all the sins that would ever be committed by everyone who would ever believe in him for salvation, and he took those sins on his shoulders. God says he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin, but he became sin on our behalf. And he took the penalty. He bore the wrath of God in our place that we deserve for our sins. God counted our sins against Jesus. And because of that, now the the entire story is freed to be redemptive for those who are in Christ. That God can now look at us and our sin has been totally removed. It does not need to be accounted for. It's already been dealt with. <clears throat> it's already been punished. God is just. He will not punish the same sin twice. If he's punished it on Christ, he will not punish it on us. You see? And so now this, this, this problem has been removed. And so we go from alienation to, to reconciliation. Now we're brought back into the fellowship that we once had with God. We're brought back into his presence with great joy. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why is there no condemnation? Because there's no sin. At least in God's eyes, right? We still commit sins, but even those have already been paid for by Christ. They've already been paid for. You could not have done it. You were alienated from God. You could not have crushed the head of the serpent, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were yet sinners. Loved us, sent his son Jesus, and Jesus overcame sin. Again, this is, this is if, if you've been in church very long, this is Christianity 101, right? This is the very heart of the gospel. This is what it means to be saved by the death of Christ and therefore to be reconciled again to God, to be able to come into his presence with confidence, and with joy, And yet, we know these truths, we've heard these truths over and over. If you've been in church, this is basic stuff. And yet, how often do we truly think on the deep realities of these things? How often 
when we're confessing our own sins to God, do we take some time to truly enjoy and delight ourselves in the fact that those sins that we've committed, that we've just confessed to the Lord, those sins were already counted against Jesus. And because of that, they do not come between us and the Father. There is no sense of shame that we need to bear for our sins. There is no need to hide from God because our sins have been counted against Jesus. They're no longer held over our heads. That should be for us a, a source of regular meditation, and I would say of great joy for the believer, to think on these things, the very heart of the story. And that's why this is also a story of new creation. It's a story of new creation. Look at verse 17. This is one of the most familiar verses, perhaps. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is a verse that we're familiar with, but I wonder if we really think on how amazing this verse is. And I'm not trying to be sentimental about that, despite what our banner looks like. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic about this. This is truly a, a, a linchpin of the story. Everything is changing here. I said earlier that the Bible fundamentally is a story that takes us from creation to new creation. The first heavens and earth to the new heavens and the new earth. From creation to new creation. But the change from creation to new creation isn't one that just happens all in one fell swoop between Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. That all of a sudden in, in one big act of judgment, the old is, is passed away and the new comes there, it's actually something that is happening even now. Isn't that what Paul is saying? He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's part of the new creation. Right? That's not the, that's not the first creation. That's new creation. And he's speaking theologically there. That Jesus, when he raised from the dead with his glorified body... He was therefore the very first bit of the new creation. And now he's saying, if anyone is in Christ, he's new creation also. That you have been so fundamentally transformed, even though we don't see it completed yet, because we haven't got to the full consummation of all things being made new in Christ yet. Nevertheless, he says, you are new creation. You do not belong to this current age that is passing away. You belong to the age that is to come. You belong to new creation. We are part of the story that is coming, not the part of the story that is uh, passing away. This is something that's, this is a a radical, complete change that's being spoken of in this verse. What we get is this picture of God's great work of redemption, of renewing all of creation, of reconciling the world to himself. It's happening. And it's happening sort of piece by piece as people are coming to faith in Christ, as the gospel is being spread, and as that good news is going out into the world and people are responding in faith with all these little bits of new creation all throughout the world. All the new creation gathers together on the Lord's Day, on these Sundays, mornings and afternoons, to sing his praise, to gather in his presence, and to, to say that by faith, when we gather together all these bits of the new creation, that there is something that is happening here that is not of this world, that God dwells with us here by his spirit, that he's our covenant Lord and Savior. He's present with us in this time of public worship to teach us from his word, to feed us in his supper, to care for us. This is a, this is a taste of the age that is to come. This is meant to be a little 
foretaste of heaven with the saints gathered together singing the praises of our Savior. This is glorious because God has done it. Because as an act of his grace, he's reached out to, to go to his people, to take the initiative. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes to us. And he changes our hearts. And when you are in Christ, therefore, the old has gone. The old has gone. The new creation has come. And so <clears throat> we live in two worlds. We live in two worlds. Yes, we live in the age, this current age that is passing away. We still live in this fallen world. We still suffer all the effects of the fall. Well, not all of them, but many of them we still suffer. We still fight against sin and temptation. We're still subject to its effects. But on the other hand, we belong to God. And therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ in this way. Rather, we regard according to the Spirit spirit that's been given to us is a down payment guaranteeing the inheritance that belongs to those whose faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the story of redemption, the story of the Bible, the, the one true story of the world that God in Christ is reconciling us to himself. Let's pray together. Father, we give you the thanks and the praise. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy given to us who don't deserve it, but we receive it because you have loved us first, given your Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we pray now that by your Spirit that we would take these truths, Lord, and may they become sources of great joy to us. May they lift our hearts. May they renew our faith. May they deepen our love for Christ, our Savior. Pray these things through Jesus Christ.